Now we're in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking at the human lineage of the king, of King Jesus. You know, there are uh, sites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, I'm not sure if there were others, who, who uh, specialize in genealogical studies and background of who you're from from or where you're from or all those kinds of things. And people are very interested in this. I'm amazed at the, the interest. In fact, it's estimated that over 100 million people a month log on to Ancestry.com. There's a, there's a great interest in this of people wanting to know what, what their background is and, and so forth. I'm, I'm not sure I want to dig too far to mine. I, my, my daughter-in-law did... For us, and um, I have a number of my ancestors that spent time in jail. My grandfather was a bootlegger in California, and uh, all I heard was he had a really fast car, and I thought that was cool when I was growing up. But uh, now I know why he had such a fast car. <laughs> you might find things you don't necessarily want to know. The uh, in. The Gospel of Matthew, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And at first sight, you wouldn't think uh, this is very exciting reading. You know, so-and-so was the father of so-so, was the father of so-so, and so forth. Uh, but this was a big deal back then. And uh, I think probably in our time, we can understand why there would be such an interest in genealogy. But... Um, I came across this story here a couple years ago about uh, Judy Wallman, who was a professional genealogy researcher in Southern California. She was doing some personal work on her own family tree, and she discovered that Senator Harry Reid, uh, his great-great-uncle Remus Reid, was hanged for robbing trains in Montana in the late 1880s. She even found a photograph and she posted it. In the photograph, Remus is standing there surrounded by officials. He's on a makeshift wooden platform, standing on top of that trap door, which is eventually going to give way and leave him hanging simply by the rope. And on the back of the picture that Judy obtained during her research was this actual inscription. Remus Reed horse thief, sent to prison in 1883, but escaped and went on to rob the Montana Railroad six times. He was eventually caught in 1887 by the Pinkerton Detective Agency. He was convicted and hanged. The entire town showed up to watch. So, rather mischievously, Judy sent uh, this on to the office of Senator Harry Reid. Sometime later, Harry Reid's staff sent back the following statement, <clears throat> having a little fun of their own. They put their spin on the story. Here was their response. Remus Reid was a famous cowboy in Montana. He had several business dealings with the Montana Railroad. In 1887, he was a key player in an investigation by the Pinkerton Detective Agency. 
In 1889, Remus passed away during an, imp an important civic function held for his honor. <laughs> when the platform upon which he was standing suddenly collapsed. <laughs> now, now, that's a way to clean up your family tree. But, uh, <laughs> so we come to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And we have a great interest in this, um, not only because it shows his genealogy, but because of the, the theology behind this and what it, what it really is pointing to as Jesus' Messiah King. And that is the whole theme of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus Christ is the Messiah King. And so he's presented as the king even in the genealogy. So let's read the first six verses anyways. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now notice it starts with the son of David instead of going straight to Abraham because it's emphasizing that David comes from, I mean that Jesus comes from King David. So verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Terah and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. David the king, the father of Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Notice in the middle of verse 6, <clears throat> David is mentioned twice. And twice he is called the king. And Jesse, the father of David the king, David the king, the father of Solomon. So, so emphasizing the kingship of David and reminding us that the promise of the eternal king would come through the lineage of David. So that's why this is important. In fact, it is both interesting and significant that since the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 in Jerusalem, there have been no historical genealogical records of the Jews that would enable them to trace their lineage back to King David, except this one in Matthew 1. And Matthew, Matthew was written about 50 A.D., about 20 years before the, the records were destroyed. So if there was any kind of uh, discrepancy in this, if any could argue, no, this isn't true, they had the records there for 20 years in which to, they, to do it, and they couldn't dispute it. And once the records were destroyed in 20, uh, 20 years later, in 70 AD, since then, there has been no one in history who could rightfully claim the throne of David. Except, no one except Jesus could do that. So it's important to have this genealogy. But in the, in the end, not only is this fantastic genealogy of 
Jesus showing him to be the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David. We also find interwoven in the, the people and the stories and the years how God overcomes obstacles to bring about victory. So first of all, we're going to think about the obstacle of impossible circumstances. There are a number of them. I'm only going to talk about three of them this morning. And the first obstacle is verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the fact that God became man. That's impossible. How could God, who is spirit, who is an eternal being, he's always existed and always will exist, how could he be born as a baby? How could he put on human flesh? This is an impossible circumstance. Now, the, the early church understood this and believed it, but soon after their passing from the second century to the fourth century, this was debated in the church, and many taught that Jesus was not God because it would be impossible for God to inhabit sinful flesh. How could God become a man? Man is sinful, and God is not. And it was finally settled in the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Thanks to Athanasius, my hero of the faith of Christian history, Athanasius of Egypt. Um, but, but God became man. How could he do it, this impossible thing? Because God is a miracle-working God. He is the Lord of the impossible. There is nothing too hard for him. And so he overcame this impossible circumstance. And not only that, but the impossible circumstance of Isaac, Abraham being the father of Isaac. Remember that Abraham was an old man already when God told him, you're going to have a son. But he didn't have it right away. God waited another 25 years until Abraham was 100 years old when it was obvious there was no way he could have a son. And Sarah's wife being 90, and, and then God provided the son Isaac, the son of promise. This is one of the reasons that you know, God doesn't immediately answer our prayers to, to prove to us his working. That it's not of us at all. And by the time Abraham reaches 100 years old, he is absolutely sure it's not of his doing. It's an impossible circumstance that God overcame. But he had to wait that 25 years to get that lesson. Sometimes God might have you wait for a while before he does that marvelous thing in your life that he's planning on doing for you to understand it's only because of him. And all because of him. The third impossible circumstance is the curse on Jeconiah's line. We see that there was a, a king named Jeconiah in the lineage of Christ. Now we're going to have to go to verse 11 to see that. Matthew 1.11 says, Josiah was the, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. So this is just before the Babylonian captivity. All Israel is taken away to to Babylon for 70 years. 
And Jeconiah was the king then. He was such a, a terrible, wicked man that God cursed his line. So I want to read to you uh, from the prophecy of Jeremiah about Jeconiah. And in this prophecy, you'll, you'll hear his name as Coniah instead of Jeconiah. He was so wicked that they removed the J-E part of his name because J-E stood for Jehovah. And he was a man without God in his life. So instead of being Jeconiah, he was called Coniah by Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 22 says, As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hands of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into the land they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man childless. A man who shall not prosper in his days. For none, none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. That is that none of his descendants, no one from his line could ever be king. This is God saying it. It cannot happen. It's impossible. The very next chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23 Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now that is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And so the king had to come through the lineage of Jeconiah to go back through to Solomon, to David, to be connected to that promise through David, David to Solomon and so forth, on down through Jeconiah to the promised king. The king had to come through that line, and the king could not come through that line. God said, I will not allow it to happen. And yet both things are true. Both things must happen. This is impossible, except for God. So God came up with a way to overcome this. Jeconiah was the last king to reign in Israel. After he left, the, the Babylonians set up a, a, a guy named Zedekiah, but he was not really Israel's king. So Jeconiah was the last king ever to rule, and a king has not ruled in Israel since Jeconiah. Since he was cast out, the next king to reign in Israel will be Jesus Christ when he comes back. So how is he going to do this? As, uh, as Jared was talking about earlier, that um, God just 
doesn't say, okay, let's do plan B. God never has a plan B. God's promises are true and will come to pass exactly as he says. He has never had a plan B. He, he never, he's never had a thought that hasn't occurred to him before. He always works his perfect will. So he overcomes this impossible circumstance by the means of this dual lineage of Joseph and Mary. So the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph's line is in Matthew, and his genealogy through Mary's line is in Luke. So in in Matthew, we see that Joseph, by adoption, establishes Jesus' legal lineage to the throne. The king had to be related through Jeconiah to through Solomon to David. But he couldn't physically be linked back. He could legally. And so by adoption, Joseph, who is in the line of Jeconiah, adopts him into the family so he has that legal right. But Mary establishes Jesus' physical lineage through a different son of David, the son Nathan, and there's nothing that disqualifies that line. And so he's connected two times back to David, one through Solomon and Jeconiah legally, and then the other, other time through David and his son Nathan physically. And by those two, God has overcome what would seem to be an impossible circumstance. And his prophecy in Jeremiah is exactly right. No physical descendant of Jeconiah will ever sit on that throne, and yet someone related to that line will. And and he will raise up a branch of David to sit on the throne forever, Jesus Christ. God is the Lord of the impossible. Are you facing any circumstances in your life that seem impossible to you now? Then turn to the Lord of the impossible. He knows how to deal with those. Secondly is the the obstacle of improbable circumstances. We don't normally face impossible circumstances, but sometimes we come up against improbable ones, circumstances that we, we look at and think, I just don't see how in the world this could ever work out. God overcomes the obstacle of improbable circumstances. Here's an example of that, <clears throat> the idea of the lesser son. You see, in their culture, for, and this is true for thousands of years, that the firstborn son was the son of promise. He was the son who would get all the inheritance or at least the lion's share of it. And if there was some kind of a prophecy to be passed on, it was always given to the firstborn son. Always. Very rarely was anything done or given for the second or third or fourth or fifth or twelfth born son. But in we find in the lineage of Jesus, just in these first six verses, it happens six times. Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, David, and Solomon were all not firstborn sons. None of them would have expected to be the recipients of the promise or the inheritance. And yet all of them were. In fact, 
all six of them, except for Perez, were directly given the promise of an, e- an eternal kingdom through their lineage. So this is highly unusual for it to happen one time. But it happens again and again and again. In fact, you look at the first four names, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and Perez, that's four generations in a row where it was not the firstborn son. If you think of some of them, for instance, like Judah, there were 12 sons of Jacob. And Judah was not the most distinctive among them. We might think like another of the sons, like Joseph, you know, Jacob's son who got them out of danger in Egypt and saved them all. Maybe he would be a good candidate. Let's have the lineage through him. But no, God chose Judah. Why would God do it that way? To demonstrate to them and to us three important truths of how God works. First of all, that it is by God's choice. None of this was by man's choice. Each of these fathers would would have chosen their firstborn son. That was what was expected. Everybody did it. It was the right thing to do. It was naturally the legal thing that happened. But it wasn't by their choice. Time and again, God says, it's my choice, my choice, my choice. He wants us to understand that what happens in our life is not by someone else's choice, what they're doing to us, but, but God chooses us to bless us in a certain way. It's also by God's grace. Just like none of these deserve to be chosen, it's all by God's grace. None of them were worthy to be chosen to be in the lineage. They were all sinners, and some of them were downright rascals. Jacob, the the schemer, David, the adulterer. It was by God's grace alone. So that would all be for God's glory alone. And this is how God works in our life. It's by his choice, by his grace, and for his glory that he works. And the odds against you may seem insurmountable. You may think you're facing impossible or improbable circumstances. But remember that we are not in the hands of fate We're in the hands of God. And he knows how to overcome those things. And he demonstrates it through his choice, his grace for his glory. Number three is the obstacle of rejected people. There are four famous couples listed in these few verses from verse 3 to 6. Four famous couples each containing an outcast or a reject. First of all, there's Judah and Tamar. Tamar was not a Jewish woman. She was a Canaanite woman who married Judah's son. So Tamar is his daughter-in-law, and yet he has sons through her. How did this happen? Well, His son, who was married to Tamar, died early before he was able to give her any children. So 
Judah promised that he would give her his younger son when he grew up. And, uh, and Judah backed out of that promise. He never fulfilled it. So she decided to trick him. She still wanted to have children. You have to remember back in that day, there's no such thing as welfare or anything like this for, for providing for people's needs. And ladies, when they got into their older age, if they didn't have children to support them, they were totally destitute. So she desperately wanted some children. So she dresses up as a prostitute, presents herself to him on his way on a journey. He goes in and lies with her. She has two sons by him. That's Judah and Tamar. And one of those, Perez, is in the line of Christ. Then there's Salmon and Rahab. You might remember Rahab as the shady lady of Jericho who came to place trust in the God of Israel, became included in the nation of Israel, and she married a Jewish man named Salmon. And Salmon married Rahab. And then there's Boaz and Ruth. Ruth was not a Jewish woman either. She was a reject. She was a Moabitess woman. But she was loyal to Naomi, followed her back to Bethlehem when her husband and, and uh, uh, Ruth's father-in-law and Ruth's husband died, came back to Bethlehem by God's grace, met up with a guy named Boaz and a beautiful love story in the book of Ruth. And they became part of the lineage of Christ. In fact, they're the grandparents of David. Then we have another famous couple, David and Bathsheba in verse 6. You remember Bathsheba? She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, whom Jesus had murdered because he had lain with Bathsheba and was going to have a child with her. So he has Uriah killed. Bathsheba, the Hittite woman. So all of these ladies were other than Israelite. None of them were Jewish. They were all outcasts. They were all rejects chosen by God. God knows how to use rejected people like me and you. And then there's the stone that the builders rejected. Psalm 118.22 says, The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone that is a prophecy of Christ, who when he came, Isaiah 53.23 says, He was despised and rejected of men. So he came to his own, John 1 says, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. They scorned him. They spit on him. They crucified him. They rejected him. And he came to earth to be rejected by men so that you could go to heaven and be accepted by God. God accepts rejected people and he calls them beloved and blessed. God delights to work in people like us, rejects, and call us his own. And finally, the obstacle of sinful people. Consider in the, the lineage of Christ, just in the people that we've looked at so far, consider his genealogy, his background. He had, his lineage included a liar, a thief, a slave trader, 
prostitutes, an adulterer, and a murderer. But it leads to the king of righteousness. So God did not overlook their sins. He overcame them. The obstacle of sinful people, not only in Christ's lineage, but in my own. And I'm not talking just about my sinful ancestors, but about me. The sin in my own life. He overcomes me. I should have been rejected, but he was rejected in my place. There's the obstacle of my own sinful life. And our problem is not our genes or our genealogy. It's our sin and our sin nature. And so, we read in verse 16, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now notice this, that after a list, time and time again, of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, when you get to verse 16, there's a definite change. So Jacob was the father of Joseph, who is not called the father of Jesus, but rather the husband of Mary, of whom, meaning Mary, was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Verse 21, the prophecy of the angel said to Joseph, And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He was born to die. He was born to die for your sin. Because you, like me, are a sinner. And you needed someone to die for your sins. And God put all the wrath that was due for me and you on His Son on the cross. So when He was nailed to that cross, He was bearing our sin. He was paying the debt for our sin. So that any of us who will believe in Him, put our faith, our trust in Him, say, Jesus, I know that You died for my sin. Thank You Lord Jesus, I want to live for you. That person will be saved forever. That includes you. That promise is for you. God wants to bless you that way and offer you that gift. And if any of you will pray that, Lord, I know that I have sinned. I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sin. Save me now. He will save you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that your desire today? Then just go to Him in prayer. In fact, right now, let's bow for a moment in prayer. Just in silent prayer. If your desire is to know Him as your Lord and Savior, just tell Him. He's listening to your heart. Just admit to Him. Confess with him Lord I know that I have sinned against you 
Thank you, Lord, for dying on the cross to pay for my sins. And I desire to live for you, Lord Jesus. If that is the prayer of your heart this morning, you can know for sure that he has saved you, that you belong to him from this day forward forever. And Lord, we thank you for this lineage of Christ that you've displayed before us. Not only that we would see that Jesus is correctly, genealogically related back to King David and fulfills all the requirements to sit upon the throne of David forever, but also how through that genealogy you show us the greatness of your power to overcome impossible circumstances in our lives, to overcome improbable ones, ones that we can't figure out that you are able to guide us through that and provide and bring about victory, that that you accept us even though we are rejected by others that you accept us. And that though we have sinned against you, you have saved us. You have done all that we need to be saved. Lord, we rejoice in you and thank you for these truths today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in that manger was wrapped the perfect gift. It's just what sinners like you and I needed most. And God provided the answer to our need in the crying of a baby in the manger and the agony of a lamb on the cross. And he did that to remove every obstacle between us and him that we might have an eternal right relationship with God. So in closing today, I hope that you will take the joy of that message, the certainty of that truth, guarded in your heart today and this week as we adore him.